Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 31. This time we join an expectant father as he pensively awaits the arrival of his firstborn in The Curse of Eve, one of Conan Doyle's Round the Red Lamp stories from 1894. And here's Paul to introduce the story. Robert Johnson is a very ordinary man, a gentleman's outfitter by trade. He is happily married to Lucy, who looks after the bills and the books. Change is in the air, however, with the imminent arrival of a baby. When the day comes, Robert goes to fetch the doctor, pre-booked months earlier. But he is out on a call, and Robert must find him to attend upon Lucy's confinement. But this task is not as simple as it sounds, and Robert is about to face the most difficult and testing trial of his life. Now, this story almost owes its creation to Sherlock Holmes, in that it was in the light of the enormous success of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes in The Strand magazine that Jerome K. Jerome, the editor of The Idler, asked Conan Doyle to write a series of stories for his own magazine. Um, He asked originally for six or eight tales to commence in March 1893, and Conan Doyle quite quickly settled on the idea of a series of medical stories that would draw on his recent history. Now, Conan Doyle originally planned to write the stories in uh, early 1893, but the burden of writing the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes for The Strand uh, pushed that timeline out. We know he started writing The Curse of Eve, specifically towards the end of 1893, because on the 8th of December, he read a draft of it to fellow writers at the Authors Club, the social wing of the Society of Authors. Now, one of the attendees at that meeting was Ralph Blumenfeld, a reporter at the Daily Express, and uh, indeed later its editor, who recalled this reading in his memoirs. He wrote, Dr. Conan Doyle rose to read from a new story which he had just completed. It was all about obstetrics and the terror of a household in which a woman was about to become a mother. All about the husband's agonies, the doctor's embarrassments and professional distress. I'd forget the details, but my mind jumps across to that evening in St. James with a hundred men in evening dress sitting uneasily under the monotonous flow of the Scottish Northumbrian phrases with not a sign of light, just a long, gloomy, ghastly dissertation, which, if I remember rightly, made me feel unhappy and cold. Finally, the big man with the rough voice stopped talking and sat down abruptly. Walter Besant turned to me and said, Have you ever heard worse? I had not. And Blumenfeld went on in his memoirs to write, uh, There was nothing in the story or its recital to give it the slightest claim to posterity, and I think the verdict of the audience unanimously was thumbs down. Conan Doyle certainly gained no laurels that night. He'd sensed his failure of the evening and was correspondingly depressed. 
Um, it certainly sounds like it was a grim evening because we have a second account of, of the uh, reading from another attendee, Francis Gribble, the editor of the Phil May's annual. We'll come back to Phil May's later. And Gribble gave his recollections to Hesketh Pearson for the, his uh, biography of Conan Doyle, uh, His Life and Art. Gribble told Hesketh Pearson that he'd heard Doyle read The Curse of Eve at the Authors Club before it appeared in Jerome's paper The Idler, and that in the original version, the wife died and the bereaved father tried to kill the baby, shouting at it, you little beast, you've murdered your mother. Pearson added his own commentary at this point, saying that Doyle saw life melodramatically like Dickens, his characters being theatrical as those as Dickens, though much less various. But it wasn't all negative. Douglas Sladen, who was the secretary of the Authors Club, uh, was a great supporter of Conan Doyle and wrote a, a, a letter to, uh, to the author to, to buoy him up. He wrote... Your story has made a most profound impression. Two or three men have told me that they couldn't sleep after it. I can't personally recall anything in fiction more lifelike than the husband. He was a masterpiece. Now, the story goes that Conan Doyle was followed by Jerome K. Jerome, who uh, desperately tried to raise the mood of the evening by giving a humorous reading. And while Jerome ultimately accepted The Curse of Eve for the idler, he wrote to Conan Doyle, let us have the others a little less sad. I dread the effect upon the sensitive reader. Now, in fact, in the end, Jerome didn't use The Curse of Eve, uh, finding it a little too strong for public taste, although ironically he did print The Case of Lady Sanox, which we covered in episode six, probably one of the most shocking short stories that Conan Doyle ever wrote. So all of that took place uh, towards the end of 1893. Uh, early the next year, Conan Doyle began to work on two medical volumes. The first was the semi-autobiographical Stark Monroe Letters, which we mentioned in our conversation with Douglas Kerr last time. And that started to appear in October 1894. And the other was Round the Red Lamp, uh, a collection of the stories which some of which had by then been serialised and others which uh, had never quite made it into the serial press, like The Curse of Eve. He began revising that content early in 1894 and wrote to his mother in May saying, I'm busy over my medical book. I shall also modify at least one of those strong stories to make them less painful. I shall make the woman recover in The Curse of Eve. So the story never made it to the idler, and it was one of uh, several new stories that first appeared in Round the Red Lamp when it was released on the 23rd of October, 1894. And it's worth spending a bit of time now thinking about why Jerome asked for these stories and, and, and why it then didn't make it into um, the pages of The Idler. Yeah, uh, Jerome K. Jerome had actually asked Doyle um, to write a set of stories for him in summer 1892. Uh, he, he wanted, as he put it, something very strong to follow my novel notes. Mm. Um, the novel notes was, was a, a, an ongoing story that, that um, Jerome had been writing about to, two men trying to write a novel together. And then he obviously wanted something a little bit different from mm. from, uh, from Doyle. And it's the fact he actually asked uh, for something very strong. And then the stories he got, he found them too strong. Yeah. And so of of the uh, the, the the set that uh, that Doyle produced, um, only four actually appeared in uh, in in the Idler, which were um, Sweethearts, the Los Amigos fiasco. Mm. The Doctors of Hoyland and the uh, the case of Lady Sanex, which is, a, as we we discussed in episode six, a very strong story. <laughs> yes. um, which it, it it is astonishing. He rejected some of the medical stories and then put that in. Yeah. Uh, but then it could be because Lady Sanex is a gothic fantasy rather than something that's um, 
more real life. Uh, and then there were five um, five stories went into Round the Red Lamp. Uh, his first operation, the third generation, the curse of Eve, a medical document, and the surgeon talks, mm. um, which which had possibly been heading towards the idler and 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 never got there. Mm. And some of those are quite strong meat as well. I mean, the third generation famously is a is a very graphic um, depiction of um, well syphilis in that case. Although the the, the word syphilis is never used. Yes, there's an assumption of knowledge, I think, on Doyle's part there, or that the people will know what he's talking about, mm. uh, and then you know don't mention it itself, and you'll you'll keep the um, the morality police away from you. Mm. And the and the subject of sort of probity, what is acceptable is you know, might be what lies behind that whole reaction from Conan Doyle's fellow authors at the Authors Club that evening in December 1893. Yes, absolutely. And and you, you've, you've got to bear in mind that this, this club was men only. Mm. Uh, so this is a very male uh, male grouping. Um, and, and I think the subject itself, a, a story based around childbirth, is, is hmm. seen as, as, as not quite tasteful subject for for fiction or, or literature mm. um so that in itself would have made a lot of members that night feel uncomfortable yeah um and then the fact that it had this very dark and downbeat ending mm. uh, would would just just add to the whole thing i mean you you really get that from from blumenfeld's account you, you mm. can sense you know he's writing this years later you can sense that night made an impact and you, you you feel this unease that was obviously in the air and and almost um the kind of feeling that that doyle had misjudged the evening very badly um yeah. and and read the, the the wrong sort of story for that sort of gathering another point of particular interest uh, which, which makes this story very very pertinent to the time that, that that Doyle wrote and read it out uh, is that that he had become a father twice over, hmm. um, very recently. So he, his daughter Mary had been born on the twenty eighth of January eighteen eighty nine, and um, Doyle actually delivered his own daughter at home on that hmm. occasion. Uh, and then on the fifteenth of November eighteen ninety two, his his son Kingsley had had been born. Um, I. Not sure whether whether Doyle himself delivered Kingsley mm. or not, uh, but nevertheless, uh, when he's writing here about the anxieties of the uh, the expectant father, yes, he he's been through it. So yes. he he's seen it from both sides. He's seen it from the expectant father's point of view, and also obviously from the the the, the side of the the medical man actually delivering the child. Yes, yeah, it would be written around the time of Kingsley's first mm. birthday. Mm. And and it's 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 also of note, I think, on that sort of um, theme, uh, where you've got the kind of social history almost side of this story, where it is very notable that the only men allowed in on the birth mm. are the doctors. Otherwise, it's women in attendance. Yes, and 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 Robert is very firmly kept out of the delivery room. And the, and this uh, realism uh, was very much in vogue at the time. Yes, yeah, so there's a great um, debate going on at the time. We must remember that this sort of period, uh, you, you're getting uh, the Russian writers, um, Dostoevsky, Togenev, are becoming mm. very popular amongst uh, in, in translation with with British readers. Zola, Emil Zola, mm. 
awful lot of controversy about Zola's work. The uh, the publisher Frank Vizitelli goes to prison for publishing translations of Zola's work. Um, and one particular work that that um, Conan Doyle was interested in was was Esther Waters mm. uh, by George Moore, uh, which is a story of a housemaid made pregnant. Um, and and her her struggles uh, and 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 there's also gambling involved in this novel, which um, Doyle thought that the whole treat Moore's whole treatment of of this was 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 the right way to approach. He, he it wasn't sensationalizing, no. um, but nevertheless, uh, W. H. Smith, who had the the monopoly essentially on on uh, railway book trade. Uh, decided they weren't going to allow it on their shelves. Mm. Um, Doyle was extremely annoyed about this, and essentially, when when did the bookseller become the censor? Um, and and w- went very public on his support for more. Um, he wasn't backed up by by all of his uh, his contemporaries by any means, but the uh, the debate was out there in the open, and, and it was it was a very um, a very scathing debate at the time mm. and, and people wondering where is literature going? Because the other thing you've, you've also got to remember is, is this was the time when, when uh, Oscar Wilde and, um, and, and the Aesthetes and the Decadents mm. were, were also publishing. So the, the literature was going through a, a, a real major phase of, of, of public you know, fear in some ways, doubt, um, mm. and, and, and what is good, what is good literature? What is good fiction? What is the right subject for fiction? Um, uh, and and it, it's very interesting with Doyle because we still to this day look at him as this kind of writer of manly adventure fiction and, and there's there's so much more and, and his defense of more stands up for that and the controversy around these, these medical stories, including The Curse of Eve. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned Zola in that as well. I mean, Zola spoke at the Authors Club in September 1893 where he was heralded as the evangelist of realism that's only you know a couple of months before Conan Doyle stands up and and gives his realist story um mm. and uh, and gets a very very different kind of reaction so um maybe it was something that was okay for foreigners and not necessarily for <laughs> for the british public but i mean conan doyle definitely realized he was treading a fine line uh, and you get that sense in the the preface to round the red lamp he's he's sort of making the point that this realistic depiction of of medical life is a kind of unvarnished truth and that there are learning points for the for the reader. So he says, you know, a tale which may startle the reader out of his usual grooves of thought and shock him into seriousness plays the part of the alterative and tonic in medicine, bitter to the taste, but bracing in its result. And, um, you know, he when he wrote to James Payne the following year when he was revising Curse of Eve and other stories for for inclusion in that volume, he he readily recognised that uh, the stories might be too realistic for some people, um, and noted that uh, the practical details of a doctor's life do take a sombre shape. Uh, but also thought that he would lose friends over it. Almost certainly remembering that evening on the eighth of December when uh, he got a very grim reaction. And and the debate that you're talking about around Esther Waters and and others carries through into the reviews of Round the Red Lamp. One of the reviews from. Uh, Harper's Weekly, which of course at this time had already published memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. They were about to publish The Parasite uh, in serialized form. Um, Despite having Conan Doyle as one of their sort of regular star authors, uh, was very quick to um, criticize. And picking up on Conan Doyle's point about an alterative and a tonic in the the preface, they wrote, uh, the bitterness to the taste is evident 
and with all due respect to the doctor, the patient will get more lasting benefit out of the prescriptions called Sweethearts and the Straggler of 15, which act as sedatives, not the best description of them, um, than out of all the bitter tonics contained in the third generation or the Curse of Eve, which shock us into a state of seriousness far less bracing than bitter. The London Evening Standard said uh, this sort of thing would all be very well in the column of a medical journal or told to a party of professional men with a taste for such details, but it is, we contend, unfit for publication in a work of fiction meant for the general public. And the writer, a monthly magazine for literary workers, said that um, any objector to morbid realism would have left the curse of Eve out of Round the Red Lamp, although they reserve their particular criticism for uh, the, the case of Lady Sannox. Um, the speaker, finally the speaker, posed exactly that question that you were talking about. You know, ought the tragical realities and painful commonplaces of the sick room and the deathbed to be made the theme of fiction? You have to think about this uh, as well. What, what, what Doyle thought he was doing here, mm. whether he was deliberately... Uh, reading a story that he knew his audience would would there would be very mixed reaction to say the best mm. or, or there are times when you think Doyle's social antenna weren't finely tuned and mm. he just thought it was such a great story himself he didn't actually think about his the the, the, the audience's reaction mm. to the story it's like a person who tells a, a tasteless joke in the wrong yeah, in the wrong, in the wrong com- company. You, you, mm. I, I, I just can't work it out. But whatever, it certainly backfired on him. And 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 you can again from those accounts that you've been reading, you can really sense this idea of Jerome K. Jerome scrabbling about to try and save the evening and turn it yes. back into a into a jolly matey meeting of male writers. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's interesting as well uh, that that this sort of the. the possible reaction to finding the, the just the subject itself the subject of of, of childbirth distasteful for mm. a story i mean we're talking about a group of men here in the early 1890s um but in 1977 uh, ronald Pearsall, in his biography of of conan doyle when he's talking about the curse of eve uh says the curse of eve was too strong for jerome k jerome the editor of the idler and doyle was obliged to tone it down Another writer would have realized the repulsiveness of the theme and hastily destroyed the manuscript, but not Doyle. The repulsiveness of the theme. Mm. This is doubtless how a lot of those men felt at the, uh, the Authors Club gathering. Mm. Uh, and the, the other thing I, I think about this, this time in Doyle's life is, is he's really just moving from his previous profession of doctor into becoming a professional full-time writer in a very serious way. Uh, and I just wonder if at this point he's, he's musing upon his, his previous profession because we, we've got Round the Red Lamp and then the Stark Monroe letters all, all coming up. So it, it's contextualizing his life at that point, where he is and where he's been. Um, and perhaps he's, he's just very focused on his own thoughts and just, just again, not thinking yes. about how other people are going to be taking this. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair assessment. And also, I think if he was looking at this from the point of view of, you know, let me write something in this new realist tradition. I mean, he, you know, much more comfortable in the realm of romantic fiction um, mm. than than realist in 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 many ways. Um, you know, he he has the perfect opportunity there, being both a writer and a doctor. He can bring mm. in this this uh, 
reveal something of this very private profession, a profession that is at this time professionalizing and mm. they're finding their place as a respectable trade. The Round the Red Lamp doesn't really get many reviews in uh, The Lancet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the reviews in The Lancet is actually by Sir Malcolm Morris, who accompanied Conan Doyle to Vienna to see the uh, experiments of Robert Koch on tuberculosis. And it was uh, Morris who convinced Conan Doyle to... Uh, give up his uh, South Sea practice and to to, to become a specialist. Uh, and it's it's to Morris that the doings of Raffles Hall, uh, which we discussed in episode one, it's it, that novel is is dedicated to Morris. So, you know, again, it's right on the cusp, isn't it, of, of him mm. moving from one life to the other. And I, I think he does sort of step over some uh, professional boundaries as a as a former medic in this story mm. and in 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 other stories but what i think is quite fascinating about it is that he um in the rest of round the red lamp he tends to have a very black and white view gps tend to be good surgeons tend to be mm-hmm. bad and um in this you don't quite get the same thing this whole story is much more shades of gray which kind of goes with it being a a, a realist short story he's trying to reflect mm-hmm. reality in its its broadest sense and so you have dr miles who's a gp but he's very aloof He's beyond the ordinary man. He seems overconfident. He annoys Johnson by uh, asking questions about rent and being apparently distracted. Um, But then Johnson is chided by the narrator at one point because uh, Johnson takes issue with the fact that Dr. Miles has to have his dinner before he comes out and sees his wife. And the narrator basically points out that Johnson had no conception of medical men having to look after themselves before Mm. they went out. Similarly, you have the specialist Pritchard, who is... um, described as being gruff and has put money before philanthropy. But then again, he's described as a man with a kindly heart. Mm. So you don't get these complete black and white depictions as you get elsewhere. This is not Douglas Stone in in Lady Sannox, who is, you Mm. know, slam dunk (laughs) villain of the piece, Mm. uh, proper melodrama piece. And this is perhaps why this story gets such a visceral reaction is that it, it, it feels, it actually feels very real in the way that it depicts um, those characters. And, and you, you do have to uh, wonder as well where, where Doyle names the consultant uh, Dr. Pritchard, mm. whether he's having a, 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 a little joke at the expense of his, his former profession. <laughs> um, because the most famous Dr. Pritchard at that time was the, the infamous Glasgow poisoner, Dr. Edward William Pritchard who was hanged in 1865 for poisoning his wife and mother-in-law. And um, we know that uh, Doyle was very familiar with with, um, Pritchard's nefarious career because uh, in The Speckled Band, (laughs) Sherlock Holmes says to Dr. Watson, when a doctor does go wrong, he is the first of criminals. He has nerve and he has knowledge. Palmer and Pritchard were among the heads of their profession. (laughs) And you have to wonder which profession Holmes is talking about. Um, is it either medicine or murder? <laughs> True. <laughs> but there's another aspect to this in that there's a, a sort of tacit criticism of the way that the medical profession is structured and funded. That Johnson, as a hardworking tailor, and we get right in that first paragraph, <laughs> the trials and tribulations of him and his wife trying to make ends meet. You know, Johnson has to pay in advance for Dr. Miles, who then isn't available when he needs him. And then... Dr. Miles has to bring in this consultant who requires three guineas, payable at the time, it says. 
um, you know, to look after his wife, who, as far as he's concerned, could well be on on her deathbed. And, um, you know, there is a sort of tacit criticism within there of that system. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't get quite so much setup of Johnson being, you know, not so well off. The whole story is also set in a area of London, um, the sort of border of Shoreditch and, and Islington, this area, the New North Road, but not an affluent area by any stretch of the imagination. So I think Conan Doyle's making a bit of a point here. And um, it did remind me a bit of, you know, I've written about this elsewhere, but the connection between Conan Doyle's work and the work of another great doctor turned writer, A.J. Cronin, mm. who wrote um, The Citadel in 1937, the book that uh, many people believe inspired the NHS because it was a, a searing indictment of uh, the the profession at the time and held up as an alternative the the example of uh, a, a minor society in Wales that had uh, clubbed together and were essentially buying their own medical care uh, for everyone. And uh, Conan Doyle and, and Cronin, in many ways, live parallel lives, both being Scots, both being Anglo-Irish descent, both being um, doctors, both having served as ship surgeons before going into practice, both having difficult time in practice, both turning away from that in, in favor of writing. The context of their medical lives is, are very different, but actually many of the issues that Conan Doyle sort of tacitly criticizes here and in other stories in Round the Red Lamp would be exactly the same ones that would come up in uh, in in the citadel in 1937 and, and it's interesting in that context i think um one of the major figures in the both the society of authors and the and the authors club and um, will be coming into you know the background of, of those shortly uh, was was Walter Besant um, yeah. and and he'd written this um sprawling novel in 1882 all sorts and conditions of men mm. uh, which was shouting about the conditions in 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 the in the east end and it actually raised public awareness uh, at that time, and, and was was seen as being responsible for the establishment of the of the the, the, the People's Palace on the Mile End Road. Mm. So Besant was 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 also involved in in this sort of uh, sort of use of literature to to make social points. Um, so you would think he would have understood, you know, what Conan Doyle was trying to do with this work. Yes. And and the other thing within this sort of context that interests me about this this particular night at the the authors' club, and 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 the the reminiscences of it, is is you wonder how many of them were listening to the story, yeah, or if it's just once they got fixed in their heads what it was about, that they kind of didn't listen to the the actual story itself. It's it's again Blumenfeld talks about it's almost like he's zoning out. When he talks about Conan Doyle's, you know, monotonous Scots Northumbrian accent, yes, it's it's like he's become so uh, obsessed with the theme of the story that he's not listening to what Doyle is actually saying, uh, and and that um, you know how many of these these people are that where where is this story going? But they're also not following the, the in many ways the fact that that in some ways Conan Doyle's using an adventure story structure with twists and turns, mm. an irony throughout mm. it. Um, so it, it, yeah, it is well structured, and and I just think on that night there's there's a number of the the listeners probably missed a lot of the story's subtlety. Yeah, and it's very hard, of course, to understand quite how warranted the reaction was because we don't have the original ending. We don't know mm. what it, what mm. what it was like now, but there might be some clues within 
the story itself to how the curse of Eve originally turned out because I don't know about you but my, my I don't feel like the ending of the curse of Eve really works as well as the <laughs> the ending as it might have originally been intended it's, it's one that I, I, if we read the original ending from what what said that that we know from that that, that, that the mother dies and and the father blames blames the child mm. um it would be almost unbearable to read that yeah. in the version we've got there is this sense of relief i know it seems a cop out almost but the, oh good yes <laughs> Well, this is right. I mean, I think that's where I think the problem with the ending that we get is that it doesn't quite have the kind of clear through line as you might get from um, the the ending as it's described by uh, Blumenfelton uh, and Gribble. So mm. Conan Doyle seems to have a bit of a dilemma as to what the story is fundamentally about uh, at one level it seems to be uh, a man's profound change of character that comes upon him as when he becomes a father and there's a line there he seemed to be making a new start in life he felt that he was a stronger and a deeper man perhaps all this suffering had an object then it might prove to be a blessing both to his wife and to him the very thought was one which he would have been incapable of conceiving 12 hours before he was full of new emotions. If there had been a harrowing, there had been a planting too. But but Kendall then almost immediately undercuts that with the sentence, um, but he felt a resentment to the little red blinking creature. He could not forgive it yet for that long night of misery. So it doesn't sort of feel that the story works as a kind of um, epiphany, moment of epiphany mm. for, for Johnson. But I think if you if you take the other themes, the idea that actually you have Johnson who's put in this position of huge anxiety. You know, you can imagine how the ending, if it had been as, as Gribble described, um, would have been incredibly bleak, but kind of more, more satisfying in a way. Sort of. And in fact, I think there is a clue to that in the, in the very last sentence. London was waking up. The row began to rise from the street. Lives had come and lives had gone, but the great machine was still working out its dim and tragic destiny. Now, that thing about the great machine still working out its dim and tragic destiny speaks to me of the original version of The Curse of Eve, mm. not to the version that we actually get. I, I don't think it it, it it does work, though, in the, the sense of you know, the lives have come, lives have gone, in that it contextualizes this little story into the wider you know, metropolis, as it were. And, and, and you know that, that, that night, some of the expectant mothers might not have been as lucky as Lucy. Yes, that's And then there's, there's, there's the other tragedies of life and other tragedies of life and death going on all around. How many people have died in London that night of various causes? And mm. I, I, I quite like that, that contextualization yes. that, that that brings in. And that sort of fits a bit more with it. it it's a vignette um, and there would be mm. many hundreds of similar vignettes taking place at any, at any point in time mm. on any similar evening, as you say. And it's worth spending a bit of time now, I think, on uh, the Authors Club because it's so important to this story, but also Conan Doyle's life more broadly. The Society of Authors was founded by Walter Besant in 1884, and it was largely an organization to support um, authors' rights. And uh, in 1891, it held a, a special dinner to celebrate the passing of the U.S. Copyright Act, something that was very um, special to Conan Doyle's interest. He'd lobbied very hard on um, getting copyright protections for authors. And it was a real uh, galaxy of stars attending the, the the dinner. You had people like Oscar Wilde, 
uh, Ryder Haggard, Walter Besant, um, Conan Doyle's great childhood hero, Bret Hart, was at that meeting, um, and Conan Doyle himself. Um, a week later, Besant and a few others met to organise the Authors Club, ostensibly as a kind of social wing of uh, the Society of Authors. And Besant had tried something similar back in 1880. It was called the Rabelais Club, uh, and that had included uh, Thomas Hardy, Henry James, Robert Louis Stevenson, but it all fizzled by the end of the, the 1880s. Um, and he might well have been thinking back to uh, an example in the USA. The the Authors Club in New York had been fo- founded in uh, 1882 um, with members including Mark Twain, Theodore Roosevelt, Andrew Carnegie. There were two big questions on the formation of the Authors Club. Was it going to admit women? And would it be a social club or would it be more of a kind of meeting place for, for authors to uh, conduct business? On the first point, Besson was obviously very keen on it, uh, admitting women. He was the brother-in-law of uh, the feminist activist um, Annie Besant. But in the end, he canvassed members uh, for their preference. And uh, they actually preferred a uh, club over a um, what was called an author's house, a, a, a meeting place, and they applied the caveat that it should also be male only. Um, so they 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 decided uh, both questions simultaneously. So it was set up as a male only club, and uh, and uh, was remained so long after Besant's death. Um, the uh, women writers went off and set up their own writers' club in September eighteen ninety one. The the authors' club itself. Uh, the rules were adopted in November 1891, and it moved to temporary residence in St. James Place uh, in May 1892. But its first uh, dinner wasn't until uh, June 1892, which is a, a particularly famous meeting because of uh, uh, an outburst by one of the uh, one of the attendees. Yes, that attendee being uh, Oscar Wilde himself, um, where he just found out that the Lord Chamberlain uh, had refused a performance license uh, for his play Salome. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he was um, quite rightly up in arms about this and um, read a speech to the Authors Club, um, which was was full of his grievances, which a lot of the authors present would obviously uh, sympathise with. Mm. Uh, I mean, the reason Salome was 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 refused its license was a seventeenth-century law, uh, <laughs> which um, disallowed biblical characters and scenes to be portrayed on the stage. Mm. Um, and this this had just been used as a as a weapon against Wilde, and he read out a list of of all the uh, the ironies and idiosyncrasies of this which which kind of fits in with what we were saying about the curse of eve what is what is permissible and what is not permissible Absolutely. you know to 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 art um and 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 this 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 particular evening has has obviously gone down in in uh, in literary history mm. and many of the people who attended that meeting and indeed uh, uh future meetings are are you know, the great stars of the 1890s. I mean, and, and people that we've met here before, um, Cutcliffe Hine, who we mm. mentioned in the Terror Blue John Gap, was a was an occasional attendee. Uh, Kipling. Um, mm. Gissing attended once, although he, <laughs> he dismissed uh, the attendees as being respectable tradesmen. Um, you've got Hornung, of course, who married uh, Conan Doyle's sister Connie in September 1893. Uh, Zangwill, Hardy, Ryder Haggard, etc., um, I mentioned earlier Francis Gribble, who was the editor of Phil May's annual, and um, uh, we actually 
touched on that in the episode on Jelen's voyage. Uh, we couldn't at that time really place the connection between Conan Doyle and Phil May's annual. We suspected that Phil May um, was part of this coterie of uh, notables in the 1890s. But we now know that Francis Gribble was an attendee of meetings with Conan Doyle at the Authors Club uh, about six months before Jelen's voyage came out in that annual. And this this probably shows up another aspect of, of both the Society of Authors and the Authors Club, uh, connections. Mm. And and you know, stimulating and 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 getting work. Mm. Uh, it, it's it's a kind of social networking organisation, um, and it's interesting to look at the members to see this crossover where you yeah. have got you know, Conan Doyle and, and and Oscar Wilde. Yes. Um, and and later on, Wilde interestingly kept up his connections with the club even after his release from from prison. Yes, um, because there is a, an extant letter um, that he wrote to his his friend uh, Robert Sherard, mm. who was pretty loyal to Wilde. But every now and again, you know, he he, <laughs> he, he, he had his occasional doubts, and and Wilde wrote a letter to him um, rather scathing in 1897. Um, saying to, to Robert Sherrod, when you wish to talk morality, always an amusement, and to attack me behind my back, don't, like a good fellow, talk so loud as the reverberation reaches from the Authors Club to Naples, <laughs> where Wilde was yes, in, in exile at that time. Mm. Um, and Sherrod himself was an interesting character because he was a crossover between the East Theats and he, he was a jobbing journalist. Mm. Uh, as well, um, mm. uh, and he actually, with with his connection to the East Theats, the uh, the archetypal decadent poet Ernest Dowson actually died in Sherrod's house in 1900. Um, but on the other side of Sherrod's work, his his journalistic work, he was a regular contributor to the uh, the Idler. Yeah, of course. Mm. And just as Oscar Wilde had this long connection with the Authors Club, so too did did Conan Doyle. And uh, you know, we get frequent references to to his connection to the club. Um, the meeting of July 1896 um, was one where the uh, famous incident where Conan Doyle was, was asked why he killed off um, Sherlock Holmes and uh, was forced to defend his decision. And he uttered the, the immortal phrase, I hold that it was not murder, but justifiable homicide in self-defense, since if I had not killed him, he would certainly have killed me. Um, but a few years later, Conan Doyle became the chairman of the Authors Club. Um, ironically, because of Blumenfeld, the, the the chap who gave the negative review of that that that, um, that reading, um, Blumenfeld had complained about the operations of the club and particularly um, Besant and Crawford's running of of the establishment, and um, uh, they resigned, and Conan Doyle became was elected the next the next chairman. Actually, there's a fascinating history of the Authors Club where a lot of this information comes from uh, by Schuller and. Um, they point out that the uh, the club actually didn't suffer, didn't do all that well under Conan Doyle. In fact, the phrase is by 1905, the club was sort of drifting towards the rocks. And I think the reason for that is that Conan Doyle was so busy with with other things. He went out to South Africa in that, that period of time, mm-hmm. as well as uh, picking up various public uh, campaigns like uh, Crime of the Congos around this time as well. Um but also Douglas Sladen, the secretary, um, was backwards and forwards to Japan. And so there was a lot of criticism of this. And in fact, in, eight, in 1908, 
um, the club was wound down. And then it, they they very quickly had to reinvigorate it because they realized that they wanted to keep the copyright of the name, the Authors <laughs> Club, and actually they couldn't. So ironically, copyright became an issue again. Um, but um, he carried on with the club. Um, March 1909, he gave the uh, speech, uh, the principal speech at uh, a dinner in honor of the centenary of the birth of Edgar Allan Poe. His speech there is a fascinating one, just revealing how much he, he owes to Poe um, in a whole range of different different ways. Um, and he was still active in the club into the 1920s. In 1924, Conan Doyle won the billiards tournament for the fourth time. Um, and actually, when he died, he left money and a, and a portable wireless set, <laughs> somewhat bizarrely, um, to the Authors Club. Um, although the Authors Club, uh, who were then located in Whitehall Place, which is right next door to the National Liberal Club, where the Sherlock Holmes Society of London hold their meetings, um, he uh, they discovered that actually the wireless reception was so poor in the building <laughs> that they decided to spend the money on books instead, which is uh, probably very fitting. But Conan Doyle became one of the great figures of the Authors Club, despite this slightly checkered history as its its chairman. And uh, Douglas Sladen, writing in his memoir, uh, 20 Years of My Life in 1914, wrote incredibly glowing, in, in incredibly glowing terms about Conan Doyle. And you really get a sense of Conan Doyle's place among the authors of the period. So Sladen wrote, uh, from an early stage in his literary career, Conan Doyle enjoyed the admiration and the deepest respect of all his fellows in the craft, and for years past has undoubtedly been morally the head of the profession. He is not only among the handful who may be called the very best authors of the day, he is the man to whom the profession would undoubtedly look for a lead in any crisis. And he went on to say, the profession as an army would range themselves under his banner. I'm sure Conan Doyle would have absolutely loved that mm-hmm. phrase. Um, suppose a question like the insurance question, which has been threatening the livelihood of thousands of doctors, were to arise for authors, they would look to Doyle for a lead. If the decision which he made benefited authors as a whole, but cost him half or three quarters of his income, and a syndicate approached him with a huge offer to abandon the camp, nobody could suppose for one moment that Doyle would listen to them. His moral courage, his loyalty, his generosity, his patriotism, added to his wonderful literary gifts, have confirmed upon him a commanding position. Of all the authors of the day, he merits most the title of a great man. Which is quite an astonishing statement, really. So mm. no wonder when Conan Doyle died, they they put up a plaque to him mm. uh, as well in uh, a couple of years later, in 1932. Yes, it, it's uh, it, it's fitting in many ways as well, Mark, that you, you mentioned Douglas Sladen, because he, he's another connection... Um, that we hadn't quite realised when we did the Jelen's Voyage episode, uh, with mm. his his Japanese links, um, and he actually you know wrote on on Japan and and and, and produced a book in eighteen ninety two, uh, which, which had opened with a chapter on on Yokohama, mm. uh, where Jelen's Voyage is 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 set, of course, and yeah. um, you know Conan Doyle may well have read that before. Mm writing his story so it's not just the uh, the willie burton connection which we went went into but the uh, the sladen or the possible sladen connection as well yeah very good so that's all we've got time for this episode uh if you'd like to read the show notes you can find them at doingsofdoyle.com and if you're enjoying the podcast please leave us a rating or review or consider sponsoring us at patreon.com forward slash doingsofdoyle so paul what have we got on the podcast next time and uh, next time we have a story which involves medicine again 
but also mixes it up with the world of boxing, the Croxley Master. Excellent. One of my favourites. So I very much look forward to that. Uh, So until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. There we go. Excellent. Can I just re- redo my Croxley Master bit? Of again? course you can, yeah. Because I, I, I read it out like uh, somebody who's English is a second language. <laughs> <laughs>